Film Spotting SVU is brought to you by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Searching for Sugar Man, a 2013 Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary, is now playing on demand. The Paperboy is also available, starring Matthew McConaughey, Zac Efron, and Nicole Kidman in her Golden Globe-nominated performance. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, and this week on the show, we set solar sail for adventure with our review of the Disney animated movie Treasure Planet. Later, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Treasure Planet, we were tempted to just do an entire episode where we talk like pirates, but yar, quickly we discovered that that'd be a harder task than finding the lost treasure of Long John Silver. Isn't that right, First Matey Matt? Yar, that be correct, One-Eyed Wilmore. Yeah, instead, we were just going to talk about the animated films of the Walt Disney Company. I'm impressed you went through with it. I didn't know. I wrote it. I didn't know I, she'd say it, but I she did I saw it, it and I, I knew it was coming, She's a and team I was player prepared. all the way. First up, we will bring ye landlubbers to uh, the brig with Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of some other notable films New On Demand on Cable. Allison, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick is Keep the Lights On. Is directed by Iris Sachs, who's kind of a, a mainstay in the New York independent film scene. It stars uh, Tur Lindhart, I think you pronounce his name, and Zachary Booth. And it was a 2012 Sundance Film Festival pick. And also one that showed up on a lot of best of lists at the end of the year. It's a, it's a film about a long-term relationship. It actually spans almost a decade in the lives of this couple. Um, one is a Danish filmmaker, and he's working on a documentary. The other is uh, a lawyer in the publishing world. And uh, one of them struggles with drug addiction and sexual addiction. And it's really a look at how long-term relationships can kind of ebb and flow, and in this case, about what it's like to love someone who's an addict. And at what point you have to decide that it's better for you to walk away and better for them if you walk away. Are you leaving? Yeah. No. I have a girlfriend, so don't get your hopes up. Where's he from? He's from the suburbs of Boston. He's a lawyer at Random House. And he seems to really like me. I haven't seen you this excited about anyone in a long time. My little secret, you can't tell anyone. It's a really very grown up and smart film about love and also about actually living with someone. And it's based on, maybe unsurprisingly, Iris Axe's own former long term relationship with Bill Clegg who's uh, a literary agent who actually did struggle with addiction. And if you want the other side of this story, he wrote a memoir about mm. this called Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man. Interesting. So you can actually see kind of like these both You can get like a Rashomon experience there by exactly. comparing the two sides. And one is literary and one is cinematic. So. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like the film a lot. I really, I thought it was really the kind of 
it had the kind of scope in a relationship movie that I don't know that I'd ever seen, mm-hmm. you know, and you fill in a lot of spaces in the ellipses. And so I, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's worth a look, though I don't suggest that you watch it with your parents, which is what I ended up doing. Oh. Because it, it kind of starts off with like a casual encounter, as they say on Craigslist. Okay. So um, that is Keep the Lights On, and it's available on VOD on January 22nd. Okay. And we've got a few more picks for you this week. They're all documentaries. If you're a documentary fan, this is a very good week for you on VOD. The first one is a film we've actually talked about at length on the show before. It's The Imposter, directed by Bart Layton, this fascinating film about this kid who went missing in Texas and this person who assumed his identity for a surprisingly long amount of time. Uh, That film we talked about on Film Spotting SVU number 22. So if you want to find our review and hear lots more about it, you can find that at filmspottingsvu.com or go to iTunes. The Imposter is available now on VOD. Also available now on VOD is The Undefeated. This is a really great little documentary that not enough people saw. Allison, did you see it? I did see it, actually. Okay. It's really moving. <laughs> it is really moving. That's a great word for it. It's directed by Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin. This was actually nominated for a Best Documentary Award at last year's Academy Awards. It did not win. And it's it, ha- it was a strange sort of thing where... It was nominated for a 2011 Academy Award, but I don't think it ever really played other than maybe some tiny qualifying run somewhere. Its theatrical release was last February, I guess maybe to you know take advantage of the Academy Award buzz or something. But it, it seemed to come and go pretty quickly. But now it's available on, on VOD, and I really strongly recommend you check it out. It's, it's this very moving, very inspiring story of a, a football team, this high school football team, the Manassas Tigers from Manassas High School in, in North Memphis, Tennessee. And, and that's like a, a very economically depressed area. And it's, you know, it's not a great place to grow up. There's a lot of, it's a, it's a tough place to grow up anyway. Let's put it that way. And for the kids there, football is really one of the few things they have that's sort of a positive influence in their lives. And we follow this team as it goes on this kind of miraculous season. The Manassas Tigers supposedly haven't won a championship in like 100 years or something. And for the first time in a long time, they've got a really good team with some talented players. And they've got this incredible coach. His name is Bill Courtney. And so we follow the players. We follow the the saga of this season. It's not like they're going for an undefeated season or anything like that. But they are playing for a chance to win a championship. And you see how basically what positivity and what good people can do and how they can inspire other people to do good in their lives and kind of... I think at the time that I saw it, I wrote something like, you know, it's like it's like the sort of movie that you watch it and you go, I want to live in this world. I want to live in a world like this where good things can happen and good people can make a positive influence on the world. And It's a documentary. So you go, well, I do live in that world. And I, I think that is really inspiring. If you're a fan of the television show Friday Night Lights, this film has a, has a strong resemblance in some ways to it, especially the later seasons of the show where uh, Coach Taylor – moved to this other high school and started helping sort of this, uh, you know, these underprivileged kids. So that's undefeated. Very strongly recommended if you're, a, if you're looking for a, an inspirational documentary, a sports documentary, if you're a fan of Friday Night Lights, that's available now on VOD. And then very quickly, a film that will be available on VOD starting on February 1st. I'm looking forward to seeing this one, Allison. It's called Sound City, directed by Dave Grohl, the musician. It's a documentary about the history of Sound City Studios in Los Angeles, a place I'd never heard of before because I'm 
not very musically inclined, where Nirvana recorded Nevermind. And the film just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, got really good reviews, and it's premiering on VOD in just a few days on February 1st. So you can check it out then. Okay, well, we're going to get into cue shots now, and our subject this week is Disney movies. Normally, the way we do this is we just pick three movies for listeners' choice we're interested in talking about. We let you guys decide what it is, and then from there we try to, you know, retroactively figure out a theme. And in this case, because there was in, in the news the fact that Disney signed this deal with Netflix and they're starting to put a bunch of their old classic films on Netflix, we thought, well, let's, let's do a Disney show. That would be interesting. And we picked a bunch of them, and that was the reason. And it's interesting because without planning it this way, there's a, a little bit of synchronicity here where there was this movie at the Sundance Film Festival, which is just wrapping up as we're talking about this, in which Disney was actually the subject. It wasn't made by Disney, but it was made at Disney. And Allison, why don't you talk about that a little? It's a pretty interesting story. It is. It was shot without permission in Disneyland, like on some of the rides. Yes, it's, like covertly. Uh, yes, which can you imagine? Like including a, the It's a Small World ride, which they apparently rode 12 times. <laughs> but like, you know, Disney is, and I think it's one of the things that we can discuss a bit in the context of these films, a famously controlling empire that's yes. very careful with its brands. Yes, so, very protective and... And rightfully and so. Litigious, yeah, one sure. might say as well. Sure. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there was a lot of discussion about can this movie, can this movie be released? ever be released because yes. it's probably going to instantly get sued by Disney. Yes. You know, it's a Disney, Disneyland is a private park. And so it's private property. Yeah, I think and they, there's they a fair use issue, maybe. That, I mean, the problem is also like if you get sued by Disney, it's going to be difficult to kind of get out from under that regardless of whether you might win or not right right exactly i mean it's a small indie film indie film against you know one of the biggest media conglomerates in the world it's yeah exactly if they want to sue you they're probably going to win just by a war of attrition essentially i don't know if we've even said the title yet it's, it's called escape from tomorrow and the film was written and directed by a, a an independent filmmaker named randy moore and yeah he smuggled in cameras they acted they had the actors you know sort of wearing i think microphones under their clothes and we haven't we weren't at sundance we haven't seen the film the film got i would say mixed to positive reviews there are some people who were really excited about it and i think maybe the hype got so big because it's such a fascinating story that i think the the, the second wave of people who saw it some of the reviews and tweets I saw were a little less impressed. It may have gotten overblown. But nonetheless, it's an incredible story. And it's interesting because it is somebody who's using the world of Disney, or Disney World, and the, literally, <laughs> and the world of Disney, to sort of tell a story about America and about, I guess, what Disney represents to some people, which is this manufactured, fabricated illusion of happiness, happiness or reality, right. right? Which I don't know if I necessarily agree with entirely. I mean, we can get into that. I guess let's, before we get into our picks, uh, I would just ask you, Allison, like, do you consider yourself a Disney fan when you, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing when you grew up, you watched plenty of Disney movies. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. I feel like it's very difficult to grow up in America and escape that. You know, it's it's part of childhood. And I, I feel like not just watching them, but often watching them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, they are standards of yes. childhood as soon as you had like home video childhood, right? I was going to say the exact same thing. When I was growing up, you know, I we had cable, certainly. We had... Uh, HBO and 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 so w when a movie would come on or the Disney Channel and when a movie would come on you'd pop in a VHS and you'd tape it off of there and then you would just watch it over and over and I can remember having these worn VHS tapes of 
you know, all the ones that uh, some of the ones we're going to name, actually. I think there's one on my list for sure that I used to watch all the time as a kid. And and yeah, they you really would watch them into into oblivion, really, just they over just and be over. Like, also ingrained in your brain, the songs or the dialogue in, in a slightly spooky way. But that's mm-hmm. also just how you watch. I think that's how you consume media when you're a kid. Oh, right? oh it's absolutely true. Absolutely yeah. true. Also want to ask you now. Did you keep watching Disney movies? Did you go back and revisit any of them before this? And if not, what was it like now looking at a few of them again? I mean, because that's the thing. I mean, as a kid, you love all these movies, but I, I my, and I, I don't know if I would consider myself now a full-fledged Disney fan, although I actually still enjoy going to the theme parks, which makes me very interested to see that Escape from Tomorrow. But I do find Disney very fascinating for some of the reasons we've talked about, the fact that they so scrupulously have this... Uh, this control over their image and also i would say this control over what i would describe as almost like a house style you know like disney like there is like a disney look to the movies there's a disney kind of feeling there are things that they do very well and that they repeatedly return to over and over again so i'm sort of like interested in how that works how those ideas are created and maintained but I don't know if I necessarily would go, well, I love watching Disney movies and I watch them over and over again. But I'm, more, I'm very fascinated by Disney. I am too. And, you know, to answer your first question, I did not go back and revisit the films that I'd probably seen the most out of Disney, which are the kind of more recent golden age. The, the Little the Mermaid, Beast, Aladdin. Aladdin. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, we grew up right we, when those were, were coming out. Exactly. So we were in that like that, prime yeah. audience <laughs> yeah. for those. And I didn't go back and look at those. I would be curious to do it, but... Uh, yeah, I didn't watch any of those either. Yeah, instead I went... Actually, one of the movies on my list is I'm see, I saw for the first time. And another one is one that I just wanted to revisit. So I and and I am fascinated by Disney as well. And one of the things that I'm very conscious of in a way that I am not necessarily in in every children's movie is the way that a Disney movie isn't just a movie, right? As it's I, it's a potential very lucrative property. Right. You know, it's a franchise. It will birth uh, toys, direct-to-DVD sequels, amusement park rides, you know, sure. uh, uh, clothing lines. Absolutely. Like it is, you know, it can stretch in all different directions. Mm-hmm. And so, especially in the later the later movies, you start to see how much that's thought about, I think, in terms of, like, the cute sidekicks, in terms of who the target market is, you know, like, uh, the songs, are there songs, are there not songs? There's a real, a real kind of careful calculation Mm -hmm. that I've been very aware of in them in ways that I don't think I was in, like, maybe the great Pixar films, but, you know, there's, there's a real sense of how much this will launch, right. you know, a whole kind of like line of things. And there follow. was a formula there, right? Mm-hmm. There, through trial and error, they developed this very successful formula. And then there seems to be a lot, like you said, there are, you can almost like pinpoint the things that you expect to see in a Disney movie and they pop up over and over again. One last thing I'll mention before we get to our picks that I find very interesting, and I've read books about Disney himself and the company and stuff, is the fact that, it is, you know, he's one of the most famous filmmakers, Disney, of all time. And the name alone is, you know, world-renowned. But he didn't really direct anything. He's a he's an auteur of production, you know? He was a producer. And a brand. And a brand. And he, that he wasn't a director. And that his movies, and this is something I'll talk about in one of my specific picks, were actually, though, despite the fact that he was sort of the guy controlling it all, they're also the product of a lot of collaboration between a bunch of 
uh, very talented artists and animators and directors and things like that. But that at the same time, they were all working towards this very almost like homogenous thing that was easily, you know, translatable all around the world. And like you said, had all these things that we expected to see, these themes, these motifs that pop up over and over again, character types, you know, things that can be marketed. And I just find that very interesting as well. So, I I mean, there are podcasts out there that are just about Disney. And I'm sure we could do a whole podcast just talking about the idea of Disney without getting into the picks. But we want to make some recommendations here. So, Allison, why don't you start with your your first pick? All right. My first pick is one that we'd actually offered up as a listener's choice possibility. And Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be able to go back and revisit it. So I I picked it for one of my uh, cue shots anyway. And it's Dumbo, the 1941 film uh, directed by Ben Sharpstein, though, as you point out, Matt, I feel like at this point, it was directing was not necessarily uh, give you like main authorship right. on the film. Right. Dumbo, which is streaming on Netflix, only 64 minutes long. It was the fourth animated feature in the Disney classic series. And it was uh, intended to be a kind of quick and dirty feature that was tossed out because Fantasia, which had preceded it, had not made money. Right. Uh, neither had Pinocchio. And, uh, you know, Fantasia, it's not a film that I, I would consider for myself a huge fan of. But it's interesting to see, like, Fantasia, which had this, like, giant scope versus Dumbo, which is relatively small. Like, how much more, I think, like, how, how much better Dumbo works, I think, and in its kind of, like, more intimate scale. And in, particularly the animation is more stylized, you know, because it was intended to be... Um, simpler it's a little more cartoonish but it's also you you know you have things like the train that that takes the circus around which is like very anthropomorphized casey jr uh and it's like very it's got like a little bit of the kind of like very old school animation like steamboat willie style where every everything seems to be kind of uh alive and then you have dumbo dumbo who is a great adorable uh like and kind of physically interesting creation who doesn't talk, but is very eloquent anyway. And uh, his mother, Mrs. Dumbo, who barely speaks herself. And yet they have this really kind of wonderful and emotionally rich relationship, you know, the start of, or not the start of, but an early landmark in Disney's very complicated relationship towards parenting. Yes. (laughs) Something we haven't mentioned yet, but we could do a whole podcast just on that probably. Right. And in this case, you know, the film starts off with, this uh, baby elephant being delivered the way all babies are delivered, which is via stork. <laughs> um, like the stork just comes and like they drop off, you know, different animals, to, different baby animals to the zoo. Uh, and Mrs. Dumbo, who's apparently a single mom, uh, she inherits this uh, slightly abnormal child. That it's a story of acceptance, or if not acceptance, actually just proving to people that you are worth, <laughs> you are a moneymaker, and therefore should be indulged. Shoving it back in their faces. Exactly. Look at that house. Dumbo, you're standing on the threshold of success. Don't down. It'll make you dizzy. Boy, are they in for a surprise? <laughs> Got the magic feather? Good. Okay. Contact. Take off. The the scenes actually between Dumbo and and his mother are really tender and lovely. You know the songs. There there are only a few songs in this, but Baby Mine, which is the song that um, that's in the scene where Dumbo goes to see his mother, who's been locked up as a mad elephant, is really you know touching. 
So, uh, you know, this film, I think, more than holds up. I, I think it's one of the great early Disney films, and uh, it's trim and really coherent and, and kind of great. So that's Dumbo, and it is available for streaming on Netflix. Okay, my first pick is the film Cinderella from 1950, directed by Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Lusk, and Wilfred Jackson. And this one's available on Amazon and iTunes. And this one I actually watched just a few weeks ago because, Allison, as I'm sure you know, my wife is a huge Cinderella fan. Like, Cinderella is to my wife as Spider-Man is to me, that childhood (laughs) icon, that assumed this huge place, you know, in in childhood where, you know, she had dolls and dresses and toys and 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 everything you can imagine and she watched the movie over and over. She watched all different kinds of Cinderella movies, different variations of the, of the story over and over. And it recently came out on a new Blu-ray, so that was a, a you know, a Christmas gift that she got. So we 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 watched it together recently. And this is one that I'm sure I watched on one of those old VHS tapes when I was a kid and hadn't seen maybe in 20 years, maybe more than 20 years. And so I was really interested to see it again, and it it surprised me. And I liked the movie, but I was surprised at the gulf sort of between the things that I remembered about it and the things that I assumed it would be about and what the movie really is about. Um, You know, like if I asked you, like, what's in Cinderella, what would you say? What comes to mind instantly? Um, the, The mice. The mice and bibbity bobbity boo yes it's a lot of like round cute things <laughs> yeah that's an accurate that's probably an accurate description of a lot of disney cartoons yes. round cute things but uh yeah exactly but t- t- it's funny because you watch it and you go well this is you know you assume it's well it's a romance and we all know the story obviously and going to the ball and the clock striking midnight and the turning slipper. into a, the slipper and turning into a pumpkin and what fascinated me seeing it is while that's all there that's actually a very small portion of the movie. And what surprised me especially is the prince, Prince Charming. He has maybe three lines in the entire movie and something like five minutes of screen time. Like the guy, the main hero besides Cinderella, the male hero anyway of the movie, is barely in it. He's he's a non-entity. And a lot of the movie is barely has Cinderella in it. It is a lot about the mice. The mice, these wacky mice who talk kind of funny, who seem... I don't know how politically correct it may be to say, but they seem somewhat mentally challenged to me. Well, you know, in the same way that the crows in Dumbo are um, somehow ethnically coded. Yes. There's some occasional nuances like this in early Disney that... Mm. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of, like, them escaping from the cat. You know, the, the uh, there's a lot of shenanigans. There's a lot of, like, cutesy, wacky hijinks going on there with Lucifer the cat. And, I mean, the animation is, you know, during the scenes at the ball and, and stuff like that is absolutely gorgeous. And the scenes with, like, Lucifer are really wonderful where the cat really comes to life in a way that is very recognizable, even though it's fanciful and it's a cartoon. Just the way he stretches on his bed. Uh, as we were watching it, my wife was joking that the way that when Cinderella comes in to wake Lucifer up and he kind of, like, turns around and sticks his butt out at her and then lays back down is exactly how our dog Kirby acts every morning when she comes in to wake him up to go outside in the morning. And he he tries to ignore her. So it has this wonderful mix of, like, really exaggerated cartoonish stuff and also some – the animators really put a lot of care into capturing sort of the essence of these animals, too. Salagadoola, menchikaboola, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Put them together and what have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Salagadoola, menchikaboola, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. 
it'll do magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi bobbidi boo. Now salakadula means a magical boolaroo. But the thing in the box that does the job is bibbidi bobbidi boo. I think it's a really interesting film to watch as an adult to go, wow, they really had these iconic moments, Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo, the fairy godmother, the beautiful moment where she turns you know, the, the pumpkin into the carriage and the mice into horses and all that sort of thing. And the dress, she has that, you know, that incredibly iconic dress. And then it has all this other stuff too, and the prince is barely in it. So it's, it is sort of a strange movie. That's Cinderella, and it's available on Amazon and iTunes. Okay, for my next pick, I wanted to pick a film that I hadn't seen yet. Uh, And there are certainly uh, quite a few in the Disney, even the classic Disney lineup that I had not caught up up with yet. Okay. So I picked The Great Mouse Detective, Mm. 1986 film streaming on Netflix, directed by Ron Clements, Bernie Mattinson, Dave Michener, and John Musker. And this is in that era in which it was kind of like a downtime for the great Disney animation. It was the follow-up to The Black Cauldron, which uh, if... Oh my God, did I see that movie remember? so many times and, and as also, a kid. Like a, really, that was like a dark it Disney was, movie. Yes, it was it slightly was disturbing. disturbing yep. you know? so, and that was not a success. So this was their follow-up to that, and it was, and it was one that kind of were like, oh, maybe we can keep making animated movies. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that that movie was not a success, and yet we both went, oh my god, I saw that movie so, so many times. Many and then times. you say The Great Mouse Detective, and like, I probably saw it once or twice, I mean, but it was well, not memorable, and yeah. isn't that funny how short-term success with Disney movies does not always equal the classics that children watch over and over. Right. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, like, The Black Cauldron, I know, has a kind of cult following to it as well because it is like the dark yeah. Disney movie you know and it's Lloyd Alexander and all of that whereas The Great Mouse Detective is charming enough it's you know it's based on a st- series of books by uh, Eve Titus which are about a mouse named Basil of Baker Street who's basically Sherlock Holmes right. uh, and he's got you know his sidekick who is basically Watson and they solve mysteries but I, I think what is kind of interesting about these films. And there's like a little bit of, of, there's, it's guided by like Holmes fandom in that this is a story about mostly mice or rats and cats and, but mostly it's an empire of mice, but they exist in the human world. Every once in a while you see people walking around and then the camera will kind of close in on the little tiny mouse door. And in fact, the main character lives basically downstairs or in the house of Sherlock Holmes, who is voiced uh, by Basil Rathbone, who was the classic screen Sherlock Holmes. He had right. passed away by this time. They actually used clips from one of his movies to use like as his cameo appearance. So uh, what is the explanation for this? Are, do we all have mouse doubles? It's <laughs> like the entire world guided or are the mice copying people. It raises a lot of existential questions. I think that are not addressed in this. There's even a queen mouse who is in charge of, you know, the kingdom of mousedom. So think about it really is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's deep, but anyway, so this is like a, it's, it's a story of a mystery. Uh, there is um, professor Radigan, who is the Moriarty uh, in this case and is voiced kind of delicious by Vincent Price. Like, very... As soon as you hear him, you're like, that's Vincent Price. <laughs> Quite an ingenious scheme, eh, Flabberton? 
Man, aren't you proud to be a part of it? <laughs> this whole thing is... is it, it, it's monstrous. We will have our little device ready by tomorrow evening, won't we? You know what will happen if you fail. There's a, a plan to take over the world and there's some detecting. And I think as, as is often the case, the more Sherlock Holmes interpretations I see, the more it's evident to me that he is uh, he's kind of a bastard, you know, just in terms of hanging out with him. It's a terrible know-it-all, not a very nice guy, really great detective and all, but like probably not someone you'd want to spend a lot of time with. Um, I think, you know, this, well, this isn't an exceptional Disney movie. I think it's got a kind of nice, like dark, it's set in like London. It's got a really nice dark palette, a look that I think is not typical in terms of what you associate with Disney movies, which are like bright and bouncy. Mm -hmm. And it has just a few songs, um, which are, it's a little weird to have just a few songs to be like a semi-musical. You have your, you know, default villain song. And then oddly, you have a song where they go undercover into a bar and see a kind of foxy mouse do a performance of the type that is made fun of by Madeline Kahn in Blazing Saddles, you know, and you're like, this is a Disney, a children's Disney movie. What is going on here? It's a good reminder that there was this output, especially at this time in the in the kind of Disney era where where there just weren't a lot of like giant hits that they were putting out like very solid films still uh, and ones that just didn't kind of have the breakout success of the era that would follow. So that is The Great Mouse Detective. It is available for streaming on Netflix. Yeah, as you said, it's kind of interesting to look at these movies as an adult and the things that you just took for granted as a child come into stark clarity and you sit there. If you can't turn off your brain, you sit there and you're... (laughs) You're trying to make sense of it. And yeah, these worlds where like animals can talk and sometimes talk to humans, it does get a little confusing. Uh, for example, my next pick uh, is a movie that I – this one I did see as a kid quite a bit and I enjoyed. It's The Rescuers from 1977. This one is available on Netflix as well, directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, John Lousberry, and Art Stevens. And here's a movie about a couple of mice that are part of this mice organization. And it's similar to The Great Mouse Detective. It's like there's the United Nations – and then in the United Nations, there's, like, the Rescue Aid Society, like, in a mouse hole. So, like, within the building is a miniature society of mice who rescue people. And these two little mice, Bernard and Miss Bianca, who are played by Bob Newhart and Ava Gabor, really lovely voice acting by both of them. They're sort of assigned to investigate this this call for help that was discovered by a couple of mice, a message in a bottle from an orphan saying, help me, help me. But again, you sit there and you go, so... So there are so mice are actually rescuing children, and then you watch it more carefully, and you go, okay, well, wait, the the child is talking to cats. <laughs> like, is she imagining? You sit there and you go, is she imagining this conversation? The cat has glasses and a and a mustache, and it, obviously, at some point, you go, what am I doing with myself? I just gotta just enjoy it. It's a children's film. Like, stop doing that. But you really do have moments where you go. What, what is, what's happening here? What is going on? What were they smoking when they came up with this stuff? But nonetheless, this is a really, a really nice film. And I think it's, I mean, it, it's from that same period as The Great Mouse Detective. And it has a similar feel in some ways. And I think the color palette also is very similar. You know, it's inky and kind of dark. And the story of, of this orphan is, is very sad, actually. And there's a really beautiful, touching scene where 
as the rescuers are sort of on the trail trying to find this little girl, they go to the orphanage where she was living, and they talk to this cat who's got the mustache and the glasses. And he kind of flashes back to the scene right before she vanished. And we see her talking about how she, you know, like she was hoping to be adopted, but it didn't. They, the, these people came and they picked a different girl because she was prettier. What's wrong, Penny, honey? Nothing. Oh, come on now, come on. No secrets. You tell old Rufus, huh? Well, it was the adoption day at the orphanage. What happened? A man and lady came and looked at me, but they chose the little red-headed girl. She was prettier than me. Oh, she couldn't be. You, now, you listen to me, darling. You're something extra special. No, I'm not. Why, someday a mama and a papa will come to the orphanage looking for a pretty little girl just like you. Honest? I'll bet my whiskers on it. But you got to believe it. Keep the faith, sweetheart. You see that bluebird? Yes, I do. Well, faith is a bluebird you see from afar. It's for real and as sure as the first evening star. You can't touch it or buy it or wrap it up tight, but it's there just the same. Making things turn out right. I enjoyed catching up with this one again. This one holds up, I think, pretty well. So I would, uh, I'd absolutely recommend it. It's The Rescuers. There was a sequel, The Rescuers Rescuers Down Under. The Rescuers Down Under. That's also available on Netflix. I didn't have a chance to look at that one, so I can't tell you how that one holds up. But I like The Rescuers a lot. That's uh, also available on Netflix. Okay, for my last pick, I wanted to take a look at, you know, we, we haven't touched on any of the other films that are released under the Disney brand. Uh, there are uh, many live action films and there are, I mean, Pixar technically is sure, a sure. Disney, you know, but um, I wanted to pick an animated film that was released by Walt Disney, but was not like a Walt Disney feature animation. So uh, I picked James and the Giant Peach, the 1996 film, which is also streaming on Netflix, like all of my picks in two shots this episode, directed by Henry Selick. Uh, it's interesting in that um, Selleck's first film, The Nightmare Before Christmas, was released under Touchstone Pictures, which is a Disney-owned, uh, but kind of allowed to be maybe a little darker, a little looser in terms of, uh, I, I think, the, the films that they allow to go out under that. And I, I do think Nightmare Before Christmas is a better film. I think it's got more of a sense of tone. Uh, it's got that kind of Tim Burton feel. Tim Burton was a producer. Uh, Tim Burton also produced this. Uh, this one went out under Disney. And I do kind of wonder if there was more input from the studio in that case, because I, I feel like the film is pretty dark and yet pulls back sometimes in ways that feel like a little awkward to me. So it's based on the book by Roald Dahl, and it is a mixture of live action and stop motion. So the film starts off with very stylized live action in which you have James, who is played by Paul Terry. Uh, He's orphaned and sent to live with his evil aunts. And uh, they're played by Miriam Margulies and Joanna Lumley. And they're, they're classically evil in a fairy tale fashion. And he's given by this magic man uh, a bag of crocodile tongues and they end up 
uh, through like he drops them and they end up making this giant peach and also bringing all of these insects that have been living in the garden then making them giant size as well and they go off on this adventure and uh, I think that the stop motion sequence in this which takes place entirely in the middle of the film is kind of it's pretty great it's very typically Burton-esque and um, he it's a, it provides a kind of surrogate family for this adorable urchin and you know he they sing occasionally which is a weak part of the film uh the songs are not terribly memorable but so you have this kind of great and very tactile interesting world and then it's but it's surrounded by a live action story that is softened a bit like the royal doll original is as as children's books go pretty perverse even for Roald Dahl like uh the aunts who in the film are eventually have their come up into the end in the Roald Dahl book they get run over by the peach and squashed in the pretty early on and that's pretty typical for what happens in in the story spoiler alert right and uh you know in 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 the original book as well the when the boy is offered these crocodile tongues they are you know he's offered them and told basically if he drinks them like mixes them up and then consumes them he'll just never be sad again so like You'll still be in this terrible situation, but at least you won't feel bad about it anymore. No, how do we get there? I'll get us there. You? Sure. I sailed all the five seas. From the sun-drenched reefs of Bora Bora to the icy shores of Tripoli. Commodore Centipede, they used to call me. Seven. Huh? There are seven seas, and Tripoli is in the subtropics. Commodore. Trim the sails. There are no sails. Stoke the engines. There are no engines. I can't work with this miserable crew. Great. We're stuck here until we shrivel up and die. Highly improbable. That's a relief. We're far more likely to drown. I, I think that in kind of smoothing out the corners for this production, the film ends up feeling a bit like it's trying to Disneyfy a story that doesn't is undisneyfiable yeah it doesn't quite fit that and, and so while i think like this is actually it's overall i think still a pretty good film and one that has really great visual touches and including a whole sequence that's uh you're it's got skeletons involves fighting skeletons which is a classic thing you do when you're doing stop motion you fight skeletons true in the history that's of cinema true. so uh you know it's kind of lovely in that way it does feel like trying to fit a, a non-Disney story into a Disney mold sometimes. That's James and the Giant Peach, and it is streaming on Netflix. Okay, I wanted to do something similar with my last pick, which was, yeah, get away from the classics that everyone knows and find something a little more obscure. And what I ended up picking is a movie that's a, it's a documentary, actually, about the world of Disney animation, which I hadn't seen before, and I really enjoyed it. It's called Frank and Ollie from 1995. It's directed by uh, Theodore Thomas, who's the son of one of the subjects, Frank Thomas. The other subject is Ollie Johnson. And these men are two of the very famous animators who worked for Walt Disney at the studio during the Golden Age. They're part of this group called the, um, I think it's the Nine Old Men, this famous group of animators who were considered the great animators of the classic Golden Age of Disney animation and worked on all the films and animated all the characters. You know, like Frank Thomas, for example, he did the scene in Lady and the Tramp with the spaghetti and the kiss and the, and the meatball. Like, that was his thing. He created that. And... Like a lot of documentaries that are made about Disney, uh, there it's this is you know it's it's a very 
soft portrait. This is a complimentary film. There's not a lot of hard-hitting documentaries about Disney, and this is certainly not one of them. But what I really appreciate about this movie, even more than it just being this lovely portrait of these two guys who – they met in college and basically spent their entire lives together, working together, just being best friends and just having this amazing creative relationship, is that it really gives you an appreciation of animation as an art form. And we've already said somewhat, you know, dismissively, Disney movies, they're, there's a formula there, there's cookie cutter, and sometimes, you know, they're for children and they're, they're just going through the motions, this sort of thing. What this movie shows you, I think, is that even the worst Disney animated movie has an incredible amount of artistry and care and thought and intelligence put into it. And it reminds you that something that I think is very easy to forget because Disney movies are so good and look so good, that animation, as they put it, you know, it's an art form that begins with a blank page. There are no actors. There's no sets. There's no costumes. Everything is created by the animator. They have to invent everything. Every movement, every, every gesture is created. And... Nothing is, is left to chance. We think that Bambi was Walt's favorite picture. All our features were different, but this one was the most different. The death of the mother is, is the one picture where somebody is really killed, and there's no fairy dust or lover's kiss to bring her back to life. She's dead. And uh, I think that's the big thing that made this so different. Oh, the fact that you had animals trying to carry a whole picture. We'd never done that, and Walt wasn't sure that we could do it, and uh, a lot of us weren't sure that we could yeah. make the picture. Seven years of work, up and down, up and down, finally ended with the war. We just barely got the thing finished after cutting it all up, but it still had that different spark to it. It's almost like, it almost is like creating life. It's more than directing, even though these guys aren't technically directors in most cases, that it is a, the, the act of giving life to the inanimate. It is bringing little drawings to life so that they move and there's something really magical about that that we don't think about when we're watching them because they're so good at creating the illusion that these little drawings are moving and that they're alive that you almost forget about this and one of the quotes in the movie and i forget which of whether it's frank or ollie or one of the other interviews who says it they say an animated character never does anything on its own you know and you don't think about that when you're watching them but after you see this movie you actually do. And I, after I watched this was when I watched The Rescuers. And I found myself paying much more attention to every little gesture and thought and, and the way that their eyes move and their hands move and just how carefully that reality is constructed. And it gives you a new appreciation for it. So if you like Disney animation or animated movies in general, but you don't think about this sort of thing, I really encourage you to check this out. It's a really interesting documentary. Frank and Ollie, it's available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Allison, we're pleased once again this week to be sponsored by MoviePass, which lets you watch unlimited movies in theaters around the country for a flat monthly rate. You check in using an app on your smartphone and buy your ticket with a membership card, and it works for any new release, though it doesn't cover 3D or IMAX. We have our Movie Passes. I just used mine last week. I saw Mama in the theater, which I actually liked recommendation, an extra non-streaming, non-VOD recommendation to everybody out there. Horror movie with Jessica Chastain. Very creepy, smart, good movie, and I, I saw it with my uh, movie pass. If you go to the movies several times a month, you might want to check MoviePass out. It could make financial sense for you. Uh, instead of paying per ticket, you pay a flat fee for the month, and that will get you entry into one film per day. 
So check out moviepass.com slash filmspotting for more info and use the offer code filmspotting to get $10 off the first month of your subscription. Mr. Silver? Why, Mr. Arrow, sir? Bring in such fine-looking distinguished gents to grace my humble galley. Had I known, I'd have talked to me, sir. <laughs> May I introduce Dr. Doppler, the financier of our voyage? Lovely outfit, Zark. Well, thank you. Um, love the eye. Um, this young lad is Jim Hawkins. Jimbo! Ah. <laughs> All right, Listener's Choice review time on SVU and Allison. Now, when we pick our options for Listener's Choice, we try to find three options we think have an equal shot at winning, but that's not always possible. It's not always easy, and I'm Sometimes we look at the final list of, of choices and we say something to the effect of, well, I don't know if this one's going to win, but I'd love if it did. And, and that's kind of how we felt about our options from our last episode. We had these two Disney classics, Alice in Wonderland and Dumbo, and we kind of assumed one of those two would win. It'd be like a neck and neck race. And then we would have this other film, this third film, which was more recent, that never really found an audience, doesn't have the best reputation, Treasure Planet, that we were kind of curious about, but we thought would probably wind up in a very distant third place. Now, to our pleasant surprise, things didn't work out that way. Allison, we'd heard that Treasure Planet had begun to accrue a bit of a cult reputation, at least amongst Disney aficionados, as sort of an unfairly overlooked film, and those cultists came out in full force, and they gave the movie a narrow win over Dumbo, which you talked about in your Q shot section. And uh, actually, it was Alice in Wonderland that lagged way behind in third place, which surprised yeah, me. Yeah, that would have been my... I, I would have thought that would have won. But it did not. This is why we let the listeners choose. That's why it's it called is. Listener's Choice. Now, it's sort of strange to have a quote-unquote cult movie from a company like Disney, which is perhaps the mainest of all mainstream film studios. Nonetheless, that's sort of what we have here. It's certainly an unusual choice for Disney. It's an adventure story that leans more toward a boy audience. There's no princesses. There's no castles. It's not a fairy tale. And the only music involved is by... Ooh. The Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> now, adapted from Robert Louis Stevenson's famous novel, a novel that, by the way, had been previously adapted by Disney in 1950 as their first completely live-action film, it follows a rambunctious team named Jim, who's voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as he and a family friend, Dr. Doppler, voiced by David Hyde Pierce, commission a spaceship, which in the universe of Treasure Planet also happens to look like an old-timey sailing ship, to follow a map to the titular Treasure Planet where supposedly a Klingon's ransom in Space to Blooms is buried just ripe for the picking. Now, Allison, we had never seen Treasure Planet before, but we were both curious about it. Now that we've watched it, were listeners right to cast their vote for it? Is this a movie that's ripe for rediscovery by Disney fans and young audiences ready for family-friendly adventure? Or would you have preferred, and maybe this is the part I should do with the pirate voice, would you have preferred if the whole thing had remained buried at the bottom of the sea inside Davy Jones's locker? Arr. Well, I was happy to have gotten to see it. Okay. I think that I don't think it worked for me as a maybe as an, a whole as an entire movie for mm -hmm. reasons I'll go into in a bit. But I think that the the imagining of the world was pretty fantastic. I thought the kind of combination of space and the seafaring imagery was really beautifully done and really just cleverly imagined. Like what we've said about some of these previous ones, makes no sense. No, if you no try sense to think about it, they're all standing in the cold blackness of space, breathing comfortably. Right. Nevertheless, I agree with you. It does look beautiful. Yes. And not only 
does everyone is everyone able to breathe in i think the ethereum i think they call it there's some word for space that they come up with but that a character arrives in a spacesuit the first time. Like he's, you know, the lame one <laughs> who arrives in a spacesuit. And you're like, why bring it up? Why bring that up? Yeah. If, the, yeah. if there's no difficulty breathing in space. Yeah. But whatever. Side, you know, what are those things you brush aside? But the visualization of this spaceships and like giant uh, ships moving, you know, between planets using solar sails is really like gorgeously done. There's a scene very early on when they just set sail where there are like all these giant space whales or something. And like, I don't, you know, it's like actually really gorgeous. Like it's, it's really beautifully visually realized. And I think that that aspect of it, I was just terrifically imagined. And the way that they transported this classic pirate story into a sci-fi ish setting was, uh, was great. Um, but I, well, I just, I, 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 I thought the kind of, the the characters and storytelling was pretty rote otherwise you know this uh there's no love interest in this it's not as you said a fairy tale it's an adventure story yep and so it's the main relationship is uh kind of surrogate father one it's a friendship but it's also it's the kind of uh way that long john silver takes young jim under his you know cyborg arm his cyborg wing <laughs> and, yes and, and teaches you know, him the ways of piracy and poor jim who is like a, a rebellious a rebellious son growing up abandoned by his father and living with his single mother um as so many a disney protagonist uh and, and i thought that that relationship was a little thin but what did you think of this relationship uh did you find it like emotionally moving we're in almost complete agreement about this film in every single way you could you could be reading from my notes i visually this movie is is beautiful and at times almost breathtaking and the character design i thought was really creative you know long john silver who has this cyborg arm that can like one it has like it unfolds so he can sort of like turn his hit hand into a claw or a sword or a gun or, or a, kitchen equipment <laughs> kitchen equipment i thought that i mean that was just like classic disney visual creativity where you just look at that and you go that is so clever i haven't seen that before and it looks great and it works beautifully and even some of the other characters the the side characters who i didn't really like visually they're really incredible just the design of them that said i didn't think this was all that memorable a film and an adventure story. I did not get caught up in the the relationship between between Jim and and Long John Silver. And I'll, I'll I will say this about it. You know, we've talked about the formula that Disney does. To its credit, this is Disney trying to do something different. But what it's trying to do here is, I think, be cool. Disney is trying to be cool. That is not something that I want from Disney. I don't want cool from Disney. I don't think that Disney really understands how to be cool. And that's what I felt like I was watching in this movie. A really shameless, desperate attempt for coolness that generally I found unsuccessful. You know, there's an alien who speaks in flatula, a.k.a. farts. You know, uh, the main character, Jim, has like a very early 2000s, late 90s haircut. He looks like he's, he got, could, he's got like a rat tail. He's got a rat tail. He's got a rat tail and, <laughs> and sort of shaved a, sides, shaved sides, rat tail, and kind of a floppy top of his hair. He's very, he almost looks like a character from Nine Hundred Two and I thought that's yes. the that's what I had. Plus the rat tail. The rat tail is not Nine Hundred Two and but it's like it's like take 
Brandon Walsh's hair from 90210 and give him a rat tail and you have Jim from Treasure Planet. And the other thought, thing I, I thought was pretty interesting on this front is we've just gone through this thing where Disney bought Star Wars. Disney now owns Star Wars, the big announcement that they're going to be making in Episode 7, 8, 9, whatever. And here you have Disney trying to, like, make their own Star Wars. I felt like I was seeing a very deliberate attempt, the opening of it. You know, Jim is sort of the orphan Luke Skywalker, and he's got a wacky robot sidekick. And he's got, uh, you know, like, Long John Silver is sort of like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi meets Han Solo. He's the wise old man, plus he's also the, the amoral pirate. Now, granted, this is based on Treasure Island, which perhaps was a large inspiration for Star Wars. But that said, at times I really felt like I was seeing a very deliberate attempt by Disney to go, we're going to make our own Star Wars and it's going to be great. So, yes, is it a great movie? No. Is it at times a very impressive visual achievement? Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I would agree that the side characters are one of the weaknesses in this. You have... David Hyde Pierce's character, who is, uh, you know, the intellectual, he's the comic relief in the beginning. He's kind of uh, foolish. And then they give him a bit of a romance with Emma Thompson's captain, who, you know, in the, I, I think in the original text, I don't know that there were any women on the ship. It wouldn't make it sense for them to, <laughs> there to be really. Right. And so she's be this like hyper competent captain. And, you know, that's the romantic aspect of it, which I didn't think worked very well. There's also a lot of Martin Short's uh, robot Ben, which is like really oh. hard to take. Well, I think we've, you, as you're just saying this, you're hitting on, I think, one of the big problems with the movie is that there's, you know, we've talked about cutesy sidekicks in Disney movies. This movie has three cutesy sidekicks. It has David Hyde Pierce. It has Martin Short. It also has this little goober named Moore. Yeah, the blob monster. Yeah, that can change into you whatever know, he and wants. That's, that's like a parrot, right? That's He's, essentially that's the his parrot. parrot. Right, correct. The parrot is this alien blob monster, which is really cute, I have to say. It's cute. And again, it, it can transform into literally anything. And there's a, lots of clever gags with that. But when you add that to David Hyde Pierce, who I felt was just doing – he just – he didn't do anything except talk like David Hyde Pierce. Uh, I thought he added nothing. And then Martin Short – Oh, it's might be the most grating character so grating. in the history of animation. He is so over the top and just intense and screaming at the top of his lungs all the time. He's these, he's he's like C three PO. If C three PO was even more annoying, you know, yeah. he's lost his memory and he shows up in the adventure and helps them get to the final treasure. But I. I really wanted someone to kill Ben. I was like, "Die, Ben, <laughs> die!" I hated Ben so much, and I mean, I don't, I don't hate it. Martin Short in certain things. He, I think he's a very talented comedian. I just thought he was so overbearing in this that he made. I was pulling my hair out. I could not stand. I was like, "Oh God, get rid of Ben! Someone get rid of Ben!" So yeah, I think that's a big drawback. Not one, not two, but three cutesy sidekicks in this thing. Yeah, and also then you have the main, the main emotional relationship in in the story, which is, you know, between this villainous character who kind of comes around and has a soft spot for this boy. Uh, I think I mean, part of the problem is that Goo Goo Doll song, <laughs> like uh, the montage, like part, their main bonding takes place in a montage, yes. you know, that is the main basis for their, their relationship. And it doesn't really give you any sense of why a character who has dedicated his life to piracy and finding this treasure would, be so attached to this kid who doesn't have like other he is like you know doesn't have very strong personality traits other than rebelliousness um that you know if you're gonna build a whole movie around this like major change of heart i think that you've got to really 
show that you've got to give some basis for that and right. it doesn't it doesn't feel like it no. makes any sense for the character and right down to the end of the movie where it's you know it's i've got to save jim or i'm gonna get my treasure you're you you know what he's gonna pick because of the movie you're watching and if you know treasure treasure island certainly you know a lot of that but still you're going i don't think that this is earned in the slightest what did you think of the animation in this you have 2d animation and 3d animation this right. is coming into the era in which 3D animation has become the norm. Uh, did you think that it held up? Did you like that combination? I don't know that the combination held up. I did think that the 2D animation looked totally acceptable, totally great. And I, it did make me kind of wish that we got, we still got more 2D animation. I would have absolutely been happy if the whole thing was 2D, frankly. What do you think? I, I, I would too. I, you know, it was interesting seeing like the action sequences towards the end, which are very kind of standard now. You know, there's a lot of like swooping between lasers yeah. and things. And that was probably meant to be and maybe was really impressive at the time. But watching this now much more interested in the character design. I mean, like, Long John Silver is a very interestingly designed character who's got this very... He's not made to be very lovable, you know? He's, like, very off-putting. And I Mm -hmm. thought the way his face was drawn, the way the cyborg elements... Like, that was all much more impressive to me than, like, the moments in which characters swoop through, uh, you know, the planet is blowing up and they have to escape. Right, and this is a 10-year-old movie now, and I think what's interesting is that, to my eye, you may disagree, the 2D, I think, has aged better than the 3D. You know, the 3D stuff, this is fairly early in the development, or at least it's, you know, 10 years ago. Compared to now, yeah. Compared to now. And you see these spaceports and these planets and things that are mechanical in 3D. And the 3D, it, it has no texture to it. You know, the details are lost. And granted, the 2D doesn't have much detail either, but it just looks more natural. Like, 2D doesn't have a lot of detail, you know? Like, that's the Disney style. Whereas you look at the backgrounds and you go, well, this doesn't look like a real spaceport. It looks like something that was designed in a computer at a time when the technology just wasn't there to really render things the way that now, if this movie was made now, I'm sure they would look absolutely stunning. So it's funny that the cutting-edge 3D technology in this movie, I think, looks worse now than the 2d does yeah i agree well that's treasure planet and it is available now on netflix watch instantly before we move on to our next segment just wanted to give a shout out to everyone who entered our keyword game yes we did not actually have time to count up the votes and and pick a winner so we're gonna push that to next next episode episode. sorry but um you know maybe we'll have another prize even so Mm. uh who knows Mm. but next up is our behind the eight ball segment in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming two that are expiring soon and one pick chosen blindly by number from our netflix queues matt you're up first are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Three new films. Very dramatic. Okay, so first up, I'm starting to use one of my new release picks as like an alternative viewing suggestion. So instead of seeing this, see this. And I, I like this. I'm going to start doing this, I think, every episode. So this week, here's my alternative viewing suggestion for Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, which... Oh my god, don't go see it. (laughs) Instead, you should see John Dies at the End, which is now available on VOD and iTunes. This is the new horror comedy from Don Coscarelli, the demented mind that brought us Phantasm and the Beastmaster and Bubba Hotep. There's no Elvis impersonators this time, although there is a scene where a man has a phone conversation over a bratwurst. The film, which is based on a cult novel, is about a pair of paranormal investigators and their attempts to save the world from extra-dimensional evil through the excessive use of a brain-warping drug 
called Soy Sauce. Better living through chemistry indeed. So that's John Dies at the End. It's available on VOD and iTunes. Next up, the entire Naked Gun trilogy. The Holy Trilogy, as I call it. It's available on Netflix Instant starting on February 1st. Pound for Pound, maybe the funniest film series of all time. Don't hold me to that, though, because I haven't seen all the Thin Man movies, and I think when all is said and done, maybe the Twilight Saga might give it a run for its money. Oh, cheap shots. Yeah, nonetheless, it's a beloved childhood favorite, uh, and I think it holds up very well. This is one I've seen, all three I've seen, many, many times, and some recently. It's the Zucker Brothers, David and Jerry, along with Buddy Jim Abrams, at least for the first movie. Lampooning the crime genre with repeated and brilliant aplomb. You've got Leslie Nielsen in the role of his lifetime as Sergeant Frank Drebin, Detective Lieutenant for Police Squad. Yes, he's a sergeant, detective, and a lieutenant all at once. He's just that good. And finally, also available on Netflix Instant right now, the documentary Five Broken Cameras. Uh, This is one of the documentary nominees for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards this year. I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward to it. It's supposedly a documentary on a Palestinian farmer's chronicle of his nonviolent resistance to the actions of the Israeli army. It's supposed to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It is available on Netflix Instant. Okay, two expiring films. Okay, expiring on February 1st, the classic Chinatown, Roman Polanski, Jack Nicholson. If you've never seen it... God help you if you've seen Gangster Squad and you haven't seen Chinatown. You better you better rectify that situation. A classic neo-noir. It is available on Netflix until February 1st. Available until February 3rd is a is I Love You Philip Morris. This is a really lovely little oddball romantic comedy. Uh really the last time and the only time recently that Jim Carrey has done something really interesting and wonderful that sort of married the really wacky Jim Carrey with the sort of serious actor Jim Carrey. Uh, in this one, he plays a like a career criminal, this habitual liar, this guy who can't stop stealing things. He falls in love while he's in prison with another uh, inmate, Philip Morris. They have a gay love affair. And it's sort of about their relationship and also his compulsive uh, thieving. It's a really good movie. It was by the guys who wrote but did not direct Bad Santa. This was, I think, their directorial debut uh, a movie that didn't get enough uh, appreciation, didn't get seen enough. It is available on Netflix until February 3rd. I love you, Philip Morris. And one from your queue. You gave me number 21, and this week that's Patton Oswalt. No reason to complain. It's his stand-up special from Comedy Central. Uh, I, I'm guessing I have the material on CD. I have most of Patton Oswalt's uh, stand-up on, you know, on my iPad or my iPod or whatever. But uh, I've never watched any of the specials, so I must have put this on there recently and just haven't gotten around to watching it yet. Are you ready, Allison, for your own Behind the Eight Ball segment? I am ready. All right. Why don't you begin with three new releases? Okay. My first new release is one that I actually haven't seen yet and I've been wanting to see for a long time. So I was very excited to see that it is now on Netflix. It is Invisible Waves, the 2006 uh, surreal Thai noir film from Pen Ek Ratanaruang. I hope I said that right. Um, with a screenplay by Prabhda Yoon and cinematography by the great Christopher Doyle. These are all people that the director had worked with on his previous film, which is a little more known. It's uh, Last Life in the Universe. Uh, this film stars Tadanobu Asano, who's uh, one of the leads of Last Life in the Universe, as a cook who uh, murders his boss's wife and then goes off on a strange boat trip afterwards. And, uh, I, you know, I think that uh, this director has a great sense of style. I've seen a few of his other films and I'm really interested in how he combines kind of genre touches with just like real 
art house visuals. So uh, that's Invisible Waves. It is now on Netflix. Also on Netflix is Primer, 2004 film from Shane Carruth, whose new film, Upstream Color, has been one of the great talked about films at Sundance and also sounds maybe as opaque as primer oh, can be more opaque actually more. yeah you know and this is if you have not seen it this is one i think people have made a pretty good case for this as being one of the great films to come out of sundance and it is a time travel saga if you want to call it that it's set in suburban texas in kind of the uh dot com ish area area around there it's about two guys who uh, start a project in the garage and what that project is is a time machine incredibly complicated timeline to the point where someone has made a grid of all of the different timelines and where they start and end uh, a pretty great movie i have to say uh even if i don't think i can explain it all so that is also on netflix last one also uh on the same service is flirt the 1995 film from hal hartley great uh, indie director of films like amateur trust and henry fool and this one, I think, has a really interesting format. It's three stories that share the same dialogue, uh, but they they happen in New York and then Berlin and Tokyo, uh, starring Martin Donovan and Parker Posey, among others. And it was a really interesting exercise in terms of using the same basic structure and having very different uh, takes. So that is Flirt. It's on also on Netflix. Okay. And how about two expiring titles? I'm very Netflix heavy this, this episode, but these are both expiring from Netflix on February 1st. The first one is Alice's Restaurant, which is a 1969 film co-written and directed by Arthur Penn. We talked about this when we did an Arthur Penn episode on the, the late IFC podcast. That's right. Um, you can look that up. It's I, We really enjoyed looking at his films, but this is an adaptation of the 1967 folk song of the same name by and starring Arlo Guthrie. And how's that song go, Allison? <laughs> 23 minutes later. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a really, it's, it's like kind of about hippiedom in a way, but it's also a kind of sad look at, at uh, maybe the, the era ending. So that's Alice's Restaurant. It's expiring February 1st, as is Irreversible. From Gaspar Noé. Oh, you got to see this one, guys. Right. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know that I could, anyone maybe could describe this as an enjoyable film, but it certainly pushes all of these kind of boundaries of filmmaking in terms of the structure, which is it kind of runs backwards, almost memento style. And in terms of extreme content, in terms of a famous and very disturbing rape scene, and then in terms of like just things like a, a background droning sound that, you know, is intended to just provoke unease in you. And in terms of the look and in terms of the sense that this is almost like a journey into hell, starring Monica Bellucci, Vincent Cassell, really a very unusual movie in the least. So uh, if you want a journey into hell... <laughs> When do they have to do that by? That's also? by February 1st. Okay, and one random film from your queue? You gave me number 51, which is a film that I'd seen some of and then wanted to catch up with again, and it's been sitting in my queue ever since, which is Submarine, the 2010 film directed by Richard Ayoade, who is also an actor. You may know him from the IT crowd, the British comedy, which is one I like a lot. And this is a coming-of-age film about a 15-year-old boy and his first great romance. And, you know, it was a film that I heard really good things about, uh, and then I just never got a chance to kind of settle in and watch it. So maybe someday I will. 
All right. Well, before we get to our listener's choice options for our next episode, we want to remind everyone that we have our very first live podcast. It's coming up Saturday, February 23rd. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. at Videology in Brooklyn. We've got a few more details now. It's going to be $8, and you're going to get a live podcast. We're going to do some we're going to review a movie. We'll do some recommendations. We'll do everything we do on the show. Plus, we'll have some contests. We'll have uh, the keyword game. We'll have some prizes. And then after we do all that, get ready for another descent into hell as we watch Compliance, the movie Compliance, a really great but uh, very intense movie from last year. And then after that, we're going to have a Q&A with, uh, with the director, Craig Zobel. He won't be in attendance, but we'll be talking to him over Skype. We are very excited about this, and uh, the tickets aren't available yet, but you will be able to buy them in advance. As we're recording this, they're not available, but I think by the time people listen to this, or maybe right after that, especially if you're listening, you know, like the second week that this episode is available, they should be up. So if you want to buy tickets, we really would love to see you. It's not a huge room, so if anyone actually is interested in this, it's going to sell out pretty quickly. The details, the info to buy tickets eventually will be up at videology.info. All right, Allison, are we ready to get to our listeners' choice options? I am so ready. This is an interesting batch. As we said earlier, <laughs> really we really odd batch. We try to guess what's going to win. I have no idea what's going to win this week. I, I think the, the one I'm going to enjoy. You is think so? Win. Yeah, I do. All right. Well, people we'll can either see. prove you right or they can prove you wrong. All right. I'm going to start. Our first option will be available on February 1st on iTunes and VOD. We've mentioned it already in the show. It's Sound City, this documentary by Dave Grohl. Got a lot of uh, good reaction out of the Sundance Film Festival where it just premiered. It's premiering on VOD and iTunes on February 1st. I'm really looking forward to seeing it, hoping it's really good. So that's going to be option number one. Allison, what's option number two that you're so confident about that's going to win? Well, you know, compared to this little indie documentary by a musician, we've got... It's about Nirvana. I we've mean, got Top Gun. Do, do, do. It's really beautiful, but it's um, coming to Netflix on February 1st and also coming out in 3D in IMAX in theaters for one week in February. Who can turn that down? Um, so, you know, prime 80s slab of blockbuster cheese. Uh, you've got uh, the elite fighter pilots fighting the enemy who wear, you know, <laughs> dark masks in their planes. You've got uh, Kelly McGillis, Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, Kenny Loggins, directed by the late, great Tony Anthony Scott. Anthony Edwards. Hello. Uh, you forgot, Anthony. Don't forget Goose. I won't forget Goose. It's so sad. Goose <laughs> don't spoil God. it. Don't spoil it. Now, I don't know if we've ever Meg talked... Ryan, also, let's not forget. No. I mean, I don't know if in all the podcasts we've done, we've ever talked about it on air, but I know this about you, Allison. You have seen Top Gun... A gabillion times, and it's one of your like most seen movies. It, are you, it is. Yeah. If this wins, are you going to even need to watch it again, or have you? Do you have the whole thing committed to memory at this point? Uh, okay, so it was my one of my my younger brother's favorite. Like of those films that we had on VHS, it was sure. like his great number one pick. So I've seen it so many times in an edited for TV version in like a warped VHS. So I could probably do like a good two thirds of the dialogue, like with some like very poorly um, redubbed for TV, you know, lines right. over some of the profanities. So how much of the tension, the, the weird homoerotic tension between Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer is in that version? Did that all get cut out? Oh, I think it's all there. I mean, like all you need is the, the volleyball scene and then sometimes <laughs> uh, and, the, and then the locker room scenes. Yeah. So, so you that know, still made the it's cut. all there. So you it's saw all that. Okay. There. All right, I'll be good. your wingman anytime, Matt. <laughs> 
Um, so what's our last pick? Our last pick, uh, you know, if you're not feeling the need for speed, is another new film, new to VOD and iTunes. It's available now. It's called Charles Swan, formerly A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, directed by Roman Coppola, starring Charlie Sheen, Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, Patricia Arquette, Dermot Mulrooney, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It's described as a graphic designer's enviable life slides into despair when his girlfriend breaks up with him. It's very fanciful. I think it involves lots of dream or fantasy sequences. I think it's a very thinly veiled look at the life of Charlie Sheen. This is Roman Coppola's first film as a director in a long time since CQ, a film a lot of people like. He's been doing a lot of writing. He works a lot with Wes Anderson now as a co-writer. I think he was nominated this year uh, for their script for Moonrise Kingdom, but he hasn't made a movie as a director. This is his first turn back in the directing chair in quite a while. Uh, the reaction to it has not been overwhelmingly positive, but I think we're both very curious about this one. I don't know if there's a volleyball scene in it, but it's got Charlie Sheen playing kind of Charlie Sheen. It's got Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray, and it's by Roman Coppola, and that's good enough for me. That is Charles Swan, available on iTunes and VOD. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, February 4th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, February 12th. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list to direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter at at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show, of course, at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. I have seen it like so many times in an edited for TV version uh. <laughs> that I could probably recite like, let's say two thirds of the dialogue. I'm keeping this in. This is going to be in the show. <laughs>